You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This week, the Ontario government extended the province's state of emergency until the end of the month. That means still no gatherings of more than five people, and other than takeout, bars and restaurants are shut down. Taking care of business, now that's exactly what the government is trying to do as this province works to reopen in light of and in spite of COVID-19. So earlier this week, Vic Fideli, Ontario's Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, announced that several companies will benefit from the Ontario Together Fund. Minister Fideli joins us now on the feed. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, and thank you very much for having me. So uh, three companies were announced earlier this week, and one of which is in York Region. So let's talk about how this connection came together. Well, we have an, uh, a website, Ontario Together, uh, and we've encouraged people to go on it, and we've had 25,000 companies go on it. So, so far, we've been able to winnow it down to four companies. Sterling Industries is one that kind of stands out for me. It's in Concord, Ontario. Uh, tell me what they presented to you in terms of a proposition, suggestions on what would be needed in order for them to pivot and create what you need. Well, they took their uh, production capacity and they were making about 200,000 face shields a week and they want to go to a million a week. And so we've invested just a little over a million dollars creating about 14 to 20 jobs and they are going to now make a million face shields a week. And how does that work just in terms of the money that you give to them that is given to them to to do this kind of creation? Do they have to let you know how they're going to spend it? Tell me how this all works. Yeah, the total investment that they're making is over $2 million. So we're in for just about 50%. And it's a very strict uh, itemized guideline of what they have to use the money to purchase. And they only get paid out when they create the amount of jobs they promise to create. Will they have the supplies that they need? You know, often when you think about manufacturing, you have to put it together, but you need the supplies in order to make that happen. Yeah, they are. This is a very seasoned company who uh, fully understand what is going to be required. And there are, they have sourced the supplies throughout Canada. And we're confident, obviously confident that they're going to make the product. We've ordered from them 10 million face shields ourselves for Ontario Health. Wow. Let's talk about South Medic. It's in Barrie, a medical device manufacturer. They typically distribute around the world, you need them to focus on their own backyard. Yes. Uh, you know, South Medic, uh, the company in Barrie, we're investing $1.8 million into that company, and they're going to make an oxygen mask production. Uh, they're going to make about 175000 a week. They're going to make a, a specialized breathing monitor uh, and making 35,000 of those a week. And then they're going to make uh, uh, eye shields and face shields about 4 million a week. We're really looking forward to the fact that this company is selling around 60, 60 countries around the world that they're going to 
um, make this stuff for here for us in Ontario. SRB Technologies, based in Pembroke, you are giving them about sixty thousand dollars, and will they match that with their own funding? Yes, it's uh, they're a one for one with them, and they're going to convert a portion of their production. They make emergency lighting solutions for the nuclear and aerospace sector, and they're going to make face shields in a portion of their uh, facility, and they'll provide those just to the regional hospitals and long-term healthcare facilities that are in eastern Ontario. Minister Fideli, what would be the best way for you to describe what you have seen in terms of innovation and collaboration and, and resilience and creativity and ingenuity? How would you describe what you've seen coming through the Ontario Together Fund and that portal? It's really the spirit of Ontario. You know, when we got started and the automakers were starting to talk about sort of a wartime production uh, feeling and, and starting to use the facilities to make the personal protective equipment, I had a, a, a guy call. He's an immigrant from Germany, been here 12 years, and he sent me a photo of he and his three young daughters that they were making face shields at their kitchen table. He had a small laser cutter from his business. And he said to me, you know, Vic, I hear you on TV and on the radio, and you're talking about these auto guys making hundreds of thousands of masks. Our family will make masks until the big guys are ready. Hmm. And so it just touched my heart to hear that. Big and small. And really what it is is reflecting the manufacturing might of Ontario. Absolutely. The Premier spoke very loud and clear about that in the legislature when he said that the world is now remembering that the, the strength and the production that comes out of the powerful and mighty Ontario, Canada. And uh, we're seeing that, that we'll never be caught again not making products that we need here in Ontario. And so... Uh, I'm very proud to stand with the premier when he when he speaks uh, when he speaks so so firmly of Ontario like that. So Ontario is fighting hard uh, this COVID nineteen pandemic. So there are all kinds of facets to it. Obviously, healthcare and that's a big issue, and uh, the support needed by and for uh, frontline workers. But we also have to think about the manufacturing side of thing for supplies, and that's where you come in. Tell me what's next. We will continue to uh, look at the Ontario Together Fund. We have $50 million in that fund ready to help uh, Ontario manufacture personal protective equipment here in Ontario for our own use, for Canada, and for export around the world. Uh, we want job creation to come out of it, but we want security of product. We want to continue to invest, so we will. We've only invested so far a few million dollars, less than $4 million, so we've got a long way to go to uh, see people being put back to work making PPE in Ontario. And why has there been, some might look at it as a, a bit of a delay, why has it taken a while? I know that the Ontario Together Fund first was announced on April the 1st. Why is it taking a while to kind of get this coordinated? It's taxpayers' money. We want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence. Uh, we had, as I said, 25,000 companies and individuals went on the website. Out of that site, we bought 
$250 million worth of products from companies that had products for sale. And now that we're converting to manufacturing, you know, we're doing our due diligence. It is taxpayers' money. We want to make sure we get great value and good job creation as well. You know, there's an expression, who to thunk? Who would have thought that at this point in time, so we're in the early days of, you know, of June, the month of June, that we, you and I, and the feed listeners and followers would be talking about and hearing about companies in Ontario that are making protective equipment to, to keep everyone safe in a pandemic. I mean, who to thunk? It's a very different world today. You know, we know that we want to reopen as much of the economy as we can. And in order for people to do it in a safe way, and in order for customers to feel safe, uh, we need this PPE out there. We need masks. We need uh, hand sanitizer. We need all of this equipment. And so you're right. Who, who could have imagined? You know, our, our biggest issue at the end of February of this year was we in Ontario, we had 250,000 unfilled jobs. That was our biggest issue, was trying to find people to fill those jobs. How much has changed uh, in a matter of uh, days, weeks, and months. And you talk about the manufacturing of these items, and it's so critical when it comes to protecting all of us, the health care workers and the population in general. This, to me, and again, I'm an outsider looking in and watching, but it seems like this is the new normal, that this may be the way our lives will be lived with protective equipment to some degree uh, as we move about our lives. You know, 14.5 million people in Ontario made a lot of sacrifices over the last few months to make sure that we flatten, you know, remember the expression flatten the curve when we wanted to fight COVID-19. And they made so many sacrifices. We would hate to see us fall backward now that we're beginning to reopen our economy. And so, yes, uh, we do need to practice social distancing, wear masks where applicable, where safe and where important. Until there's a vaccine, we're going to be living in a very different uh, society. It was announced earlier this week that the state of emergency has been extended until the end of June. So how will this impact businesses reopening and the economic recovery from your point of view? This is more of a technical issue to allow us to do things in the legislature to allow us to proceed from from a legislative perspective. It will not affect the opening of the businesses. You will hear the Premier talk about Stage 2 one of these days in the near future, you know, the last time we, when we opened stage one, which put construction back to work, put automotive back to work, put retail for the most part back to work. On that day, it would have been two to three weeks till the next stage. And so we're getting closer to that point. So you'll hear from the Premier soon on the stage two and what the date will be, but it won't be affected by the emergency order. That's more technical. If someone listening, following what we are talking about right now and what you are presenting and the future of the Ontario Together Fund, how would they get their bright ideas and suggestions to you? Well, first, we want those ideas. Uh, there's, there, there's never an end to getting these great ideas. They can go to Ontario.ca slash Ontario Together. Tell us the story. Uh, it's not always going to be about buying uh, 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 PPE or manufacturing. We also, there's health issues, there's uh, mental health issues. We want your assistance on those areas as well. Vic Fideli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. 
Thank you for joining us on the feed. We will be speaking again. I have that feeling. (laughs) I would look forward to it, and thank you very, very kindly. So many companies are stepping up during this pandemic, including Markham's Flato Developments. Afua Ba with the details. Well, no stranger to the community, Flato Development is reaching out once again and giving a helping hand to a region in Ontario. So I'm not going to give all of the details. I have the perfect person here to uh, give us the great news. So joining me to chat today is President of Flato Development, Shakir Ramatula. Shakir, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my honor. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so please then do me the honor in telling me about the generous donation from Flato Development. We are building a master plan community in the village of Dundalk, uh, which is uh, about an hour away from Brampton and Mississauga. We have been actively involved in the community over there, and we were able to partner up with the Southeast Gray Health Unit to come up with a new medical clinic in Dundalk, just steps away from one of our uh, communities that we will be building very soon. And we are excited that we were able to team up with them. They've got support from the local municipality, the township of Southgate. They're getting support from the province of Ontario. And especially in this time when people are getting to realize that how important healthcare is, how important um, hospitals are, how important the medical units are. So I think this, the timing is perfect. And at Flato, it is our standard practice to go out and work with the communities and give back to the communities where we operate and where we build. So providing that seed money, of course, to the uh, South, Southeast Gray Community Health Center, um, especially during this time, if you can talk to me a little bit about the need to support healthcare facilities in general, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. Especially now, I have been, I've been a strong supporter of the hospitals and, and um, medical centers. In Markham, you may know we uh, support a cancer clinic at the Markham Stowell Hospital, and it's named the Shakir Ramatula Cancer Clinic. So it's one of the examples. We're supporting Markdale Hospital, and we don't own any land in, in, in the township of Markdale, in Ashley's township of Grey Highlands, but in the community of Markdale, we don't own anything over there. There will be more need of local hospitals. So I think time is now. It's never too late to support your local hospital. I strongly believe in supporting the, the healthcare units and, and the hospitals. Because you never know when you're going to need the hospital. And we don't realize when we need, an ho- need to go to the hospital unless one of our family members or, or us ourselves, we have to use the hospital facility. So I strongly believe in supporting the hospitals. The company has been quite busy then with giving back to the community in general since the pandemic began. And of course, it has taken the whole world by storm. Uh, what are some of the initiatives that Flato Development has started since the COVID-19 pandemic? The, the day, the first day that we understood and the world realized in, in Ontario, we real, realized that we have crisis and we have to take uh, serious action. We at Flato, we basically committed ourselves that we are going to acquire PPE. First, for our staff, we told all the staff members to work from home and only come to work when and how they feel comfortable, only when they're comfortable coming in, only then they should come in. And if they're coming in, they should be wearing a mask, they should have gloves on, they should be fully protected because the safety of our, our people uh, and our staff and our team is, is paramount to me. And then we have allocated $250,000 towards the distribution of PPE and towards supporting the local food banks in the communities where we work. So we just wanted to do our part. We just wanted to basically go out there because I've talked to some of the nurses, and when they tell me that we are 
treating patients and you know we believe we don't think we have enough PPE this is going back like month and a half ago or so especially when the PPE was like gold uh, and I physically went myself to many um, places and I delivered PPE myself our team members our staff members have been very supportive and I must say that all the people I've all the companies all the uh, business partners, we've got our trades, our consultants, uh, everybody has come forward to support us and on the site as well, you know, everybody has been respecting the social distancing, people are, are following the guidelines and I'm really blessed that, you know, we've got great team helping us out and we're continuing on to build. Yes, it's taking a little bit longer to build now, but we're just, we have to follow the guidelines put in place by the government, uh, uh, by the local municipalities and by the province of Ontario. So so we're good. Thank God it's it's happening and it's it's we're moving ahead. Well then of course thank you was an order to you on behalf of those who might not have been able to say thank you for the donations that you have been providing to the community uh, so far. And if there's anyone that wants more information in terms of the work that Flato Development continues to do, where can they go? They can go to our website flatogroup.com. And uh, we are trying to go uh, completely uh, virtual. So, in fact, we're having virtual webinars on the weekends as well. So if, you, if you're looking to buy a home, you can log in. Uh, you can literally purchase a home. You have a question about the home that you've purchased, about your closing date. You can reach out to us. If you have moved in, if you have concerns or questions, you can reach out to us. So we are doing anything in our power to be as accessible to our home buyers as possible. And uh, once again, the website is flatogroup.com, and you can get all the details from there. Perfect. All right. Partnering with the community to build the community, President of Flato Development, Shakir Ramatula, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. If the ongoing battle against the virus and recent protests over the death of an unarmed black man at the hands of police in Minnesota have you feeling anxious, you are definitely not alone. Tina Cortez with that story. Dr. Deanne Sims, tell us about your work and the mandate of CMHA. So as the clinical director at CMHA York and South Simcoe, I have the privilege of overseeing a number of programs that are targeted at increasing access to treatments that help to improve mental and physical health and well-being. So the mandate of CMHA includes not only helping people to increase and maintain their health, but also includes educating and building belonging and improving care through our cultural inclusion and trauma-informed programs. In the current climate, our mandate also includes providing our communities and our staff with mental health resources so that we can help people to process a lot of the strong and complex emotions and responses that are arising in the face of a national and international landscape that is broiling around us. You said it, COVID-19, the current landscape has drastically changed our lives. And with the recent tensions following the death of George Floyd, and the SIU investigation here at home following the death of a woman who fell from the 24th floor of an apartment building, it is easy, I'm sure, to feel anxiety and stress. What advice do you have to help us cope? We have spoken for weeks about how unprecedented the current climate has been because of COVID-19, and now we have overlaid on top of that situation the unrest, 
the demonstrations that are moving across Canada the, and the world, truly. It makes complete sense that people are feeling a wealth of emotions, like stress, anxiety, helplessness, hopelessness. And I think that a lot of the directions that we've been giving folks to help to manage in the short term are important and still continue to be valuable. So making sure that people continue to maintain routines or rhythms of life to help maintain their well-being, things like eating healthful, balanced meals, engaging in regular physical activity and good sleep, those things are all still very important. But what we know is that we're moving more toward more of a longer-term state of isolation and distancing. And so some of the coping techniques that we were using early on through this pandemic might have served us well, but we might need to adapt or modify or do something different to make sure that we're able to continue to manage our health and well-being. So some things that are important now are continuing to make sure that we are focused on not only our daily lives, but also the things that give our life meaning and value. With so many things swirling around us that are uncertain or outside of our control, it's important to stay focused on controlling the controllable. So really taking a look at the things that are important in our lives and finding a way to meet those needs, even if it might look different now than it did three months ago. So if volunteering is something that gave a person's life meaning, then finding a way to volunteer skills or time, even if that happens on an online forum. Also finding a way to step away from media coverage, being able to reconnect with communities and people around us that matter, that help to ground us and continue to provide us with some of the stability, control, and well-being that we really desperately need in these times right now. Sounds like control is a key word there. What are some of the signs or symptoms that we should watch for in someone who might be feeling anxious or stressed? We know that this can look different for individuals. And it can certainly look different across the lifespan. So for children, you might be on the lookout for excessive crying or a return to behaviors that they might have outgrown, a child who might go back to bedwetting or accidents, even though they've sort of progressed past those things, changes in sleep patterns or appetite. You might also look in uh, youth and teens for different behaviors like isolating more, spending more time away from friends and family, or different acting out behaviors that might be a little bit atypical. For adults, we, we try to pay attention to changes in sleep, so sleeping too much or not sleeping enough, physical symptoms like headaches, stomach problems, different aches and pains, or feeling overly anxious, numb, confused, and really noticing if there are changes in um, using substances or eating behaviors. And so these are, there's a wide range of signs and symptoms that anyone might experience, but some of the things we really try to pay attention to are whether they show up and stick around for more than a couple of weeks or whether they get in the way of being able to move through life in a typical way. So, so whether they start making it difficult to focus or connect with friends and family or stay present in different conversations. 
those are some signs that folks might need a bit more formal support. And then certainly if anyone is feeling real struggles with thoughts of hopelessness or thoughts of harming themselves or other people, those are some clear signs that folks would need a bit more formal support and should reach out to to different resources or supports in their lives. Thank you. That's great advice there. How do parents talk about the state of our world with um, their young children at home and maybe even their teens? This is a very difficult time for everyone and most certainly for parents as well. We know that parents are, of course, human beings who are experiencing their own reactions and their own emotions to all of the things surrounding them in the world and their communities. And children are not immune to that. Children most certainly are able to notice changes in their parents' moods or functioning as well. So one of the important things to do is to be open and honest with our children, letting them know certainly within uh, a developmentally appropriate way, and by that I mean making sure that the conversations you're having with a four-year-old or a five-year-old are different than the ones you're having with a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, but letting them know that there are things going on that are causing, you know, feelings of worry or feelings of sadness, and that it's okay to have those emotions. And then trying to be transparent about what you're doing with those emotions. Is it that you're going back to those coping skills that you were using to manage your emotions? Or is it that you're taking the opportunity to act in ways that continue to let you live your life in a way that aligns with your values or the family's values? And just making sure that you're giving space to listen to your children and check in about the emotions that they're feeling and letting them know that those emotions are okay they make sense, and that you're there to help them find out what to do about those emotions. The other important part about parenting our children right now is certainly making sure that we're, we're being honest with them, but being mindful of what we're exposing them to in terms of media coverage. There should be some awareness of the events happening, but just being mindful of the amount of media coverage that they're exposed to and some of the images that are popping up quite commonly on our social media threads, internet sources, or television uh, media outlets. Just making sure that we're mindful of limiting that or having thoughtful discussions when those images happen, or for younger viewing audiences, just making sure that we are protecting them and insulating from some of the more graphic images that are being depicted right now. Dr. Sims, if our listeners want more information about strategies to help or about CMHA, where can they find it? Uh, We have a website that has information about our programs and then also online resources. And our website is cmha-yr.on.ca. Dr. Sims, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me for these important conversations. Thank you, Tina. Clovis Grant, the CEO of 360 Kids here in York Region, joins us now on the feed with what we say to our young people about the killing of George Floyd, the thundering protests erupting now around the world while we are in the midst of a global pandemic. Thanks for being with us, Clovis. Thanks so much, Anne, for being here. So our young people are, and really people of all ages, are astonished saddened, shocked, very moved by the images that they're seeing around the world in terms of protests, but what is going on in the United States. And I think it probably starts with the video that 
just about everyone has viewed of the killing of George Floyd. How do we help our young people try to come to grips with what they're seeing and what they're hearing right now? I think one of the most important things we can do is to listen. Uh, I know that that's something that we are doing here at 360 is providing space for the youth to speak. Uh, I think in general, uh, when you're talking about issues of homelessness, that is an important thing to do, period. When you add this additional crisis uh, around race and anti-black racism in particular, listening and not judging is even more important and I and one of the things that I know came up in a conversation I've had with staff is don't say things like I understand because you may very well not and and, and even I as a black person cannot and will not use that because my son who is 25 I can't say I understand because his challenges the, the, the things that he encounters may be very different than what me as a 50 plus year old person would encounter so I think finding giving space to our young people to talk about these things and we have and you hear things like hopelessness anger frustration you used a few in your intro but these are things re-traumatizing uh, these are things that many of our kids especially those who grew up in child welfare for them it's almost like a band-aid and you're ripping it over again uh, just when you think you're making some progress there is a reminder that you are not human or second class like there are lots of feelings and emotions that come uh, with that and so you, you've got to take the time to listen to our young people and actually validate that their feelings and, and not try to come up with answers because that, that's, that's very difficult to do. Clovis, what is your reaction to what you're seeing around the world and in particular the United States, the protests that are going on night after night, often violent? Is there going to be some sort of meaningful change that may emerge because of how people are coming together from all walks of life to say, enough, no more, this may not have affected me directly, but it now does. Will there be significant change as a result of this? That is a big, you've got a lot of questions there. And and, in terms of the violence, I'm not a proponent of violence by any means. And and so I think that's first and foremost. I do understand the, 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 the concerns that people have, the frustrations, I shared hopelessness, and and I would like to think that there is a level of hope that can be garnered from this with the unity that, that is happening across the, the, the world. I, I, I didn't realize it until today, just the numbers of different countries that are that are involved, and, and, and that is heartening. So one can only remain optimistic. Uh, I, I, I was having this conversation with, with my, my wife about what is different now. I mean, I've read enough books and articles about the, the civil rights movement. We've all watched a lot of movies, and you think, have we made any progress? And, and so I'm trying to remain optimistic, Anne. I, I really am. Uh, but it's hard when you think you're making progress, and then something like this happens, and then you have to wonder, has that all been in, in vain? So I'd like to remain optimistic, uh, but at the same time frustrated at the same time that we, we have to 
have these conversations yet again, which tells me that the, the systems that perpetuate this kind of behavior is what we need to look at and not just individuals. What about in your own life, if you're comfortable sharing? Have you been discriminated against? Have you had a situation where uh, it, uh, it, it hurt to the core uh, how you were treated? Uh, yeah, I think for me it's, it's comments like, go back to where you came from, <laughs> which, you know, you, you, you like to brush things like that off, I mean, you, these are comments that sometimes people who don't even know you throw at you, and, and you think, where, where did that come from? Do you not also recognize that you, too, are an immigrant to this country? So this is where, for me, it's, it gnaws at me, and th- th- these comments have been uh, many years old, but they still gnaw away at me because there is this feeling like, the the ownership of Canada is for the Europeans, and when in fact we know that all of us have been uh, who have immigrated here, and 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 so to, for one group to say that you go back to wherever, I'm thinking, really? Do you not know history? <laughs> this is where the education for me comes, and and so this is where I know some of the challenges with the indigenous populations where. They, they too feel that sense of not being belonged when in fact if anyone belongs it would be that group and, and so those are comments when I hear them directed at me they gnaw at me and, and I can tell you how many times I've been called the, 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 the n-word and, and other uh, words that try to demean your intelligence and you know I, I did well in school uh, but most people, when they see you as a young black person, they think athletics, you must be good at basketball. And it's like, really? <laughs> uh, is that how you see me? And, and so it's those microaggressions that over time, you, at times you just dismiss it, um, but then there, there are certain comments that, even after many years, just continue to gnaw away at you. There is a sense of of change in the wind. Uh, Let's bring this now back to kids. They're so valuable. They are our Mm -hmm. future. 360 Kids does an incredible job. I looked at your website the other day, and in quotation marks, we need you now more than ever. And I think you're talking about people who support, but I think you're also saying that to the young people, the youth at risk out there. So what do you say to young people who are confused by this, but maybe even inspired to make change? You know, young people, we, we, we have a, a youth strategy that we're working with our partners throughout the region. Uh, our commitment through that youth housing stabilization strategy is to look at how we can end homelessness and reduce the, the length of time a young person becomes homeless. And involved in that strategy are young people, and they're the ones that, that, that are also guiding us in helping us understand how to change some of these systemic issues. And, and so their voice in this is, is critical and, and, and very important, and we rely on them uh, because they do have answers. Um, uh, we just have to, to, to listen. And so uh, I engage, I, I, I look forward and welcome uh, always our young people in, in this conversation. Uh, I think it's important that they do have a voice, 
uh, it's important for them to be able to to share their perspective, and it's important as uh, as service providers in our work. We're looking for spaces where we can do this work better, and uh, I mean we've engaged in the, with a consultant to actually help us review our approach to dealing with equity, diversity, and inclusion, so that we can be better. Um, and uh, making sure that things that we may not see right now that we're actually identifying. And, and a big part of that will be to engage young people as well because uh, they do have answers. And, and, and we want them to remain hopeful. I mean, I shared with you some of the, 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 the comments and the, the hurt and the pain that they, they're currently feeling. So in order for them to feel more hopeful, we need to find ways to hear, to give them ways to, to share their voice so that they can actually be part of the solution. 360 Kids makes a real difference. So do you, Clovis Grant. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much for this time and uh, the opportunity to, to, to share. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. There are also very challenging days for our seniors as they continue to self-isolate because of the risk of COVID-19. Jim Lang with Why We Need to Stay in Touch. June is upon us, and for people who are not aware, it is Seniors Month, and it's an opportunity to make sure we are taking care of those who spent their lives taking care of us. To talk more about it, thrilled to speaking to the MPP for Scarborough Rouge River and the Ontario Minister of Seniors and Accessibility, Raymond Chol. Raymond, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, Raymond, I, I mean, I, my parents are seniors. My mother-in-law is a senior. I can't think of any other time where Singers Month is more important than what we're going through right now with COVID-19. Yes, I totally agree with you. I'm a senior myself, so I know what you're saying. The theme this year, stay safe, stay in touch, and that is so difficult for people with loved ones in long-term care homes to stay in touch when you're isolating. It is it is a real challenge. It is. It's a real challenge. Uh, you know, my heart is breaking, and uh, so many people die of uh, COVID-19. Majority of, of 80%, they are seniors. And uh, the, the really sad part is uh, at the last moment of their life, they, when they pass away, they cannot be with their own families. It's a real tragedy, really so sad. Uh, what kind of information does the government have, Raymond, about the impact that self-isolation is having on our seniors in the province? That's a very good question. So, as you know, uh, self-isolation is a real uh, risk factor for seniors. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're isolated, you're more likely to become depressed and you have a more problem. But uh, because of this COVID-19 spreading so fast, government and the uh, chief medical office, we have to uh, put the social policy policy to keep this social distance. And uh, it's an added problem for seniors. Unless we do that, the more seniors will become a victim. But uh, to fight against the social isolation, government has taken so many different actions. For example, we used to have the, one of the best programs, senior active living centers across the province, over 300, but we cannot meet together. 
So now we have 175 programs are currently being offered remotely. These types of programs include teleconference, online videos, and the one-on-one phone calls help seniors stay connected from home. Uh, I give you further information to find a local senior active living center in new areas called 211 or 1-877-330-3213. It's all toll-free. Our TTY service is also available by dialing one dash triple dash three four zero zero dash one zero zero one. I know the province has also invested a large chunk of money into the Ontario Community Support Program to help make sure that meals and medicine and other necessities get into the hands of the seniors. Uh, yeah, you, I, I think you already know a lot of things of what we're doing. Ontario has also implemented an eleven million dollars. Ontario Community Support Program to help deliver meals, medicine, and other essentials to low-income seniors and people with disabilities, and including those with the underlying medical conditions that make them most vulnerable to COVID-19. What else can we can do as people in Ontario to help seniors, to help not just this month, but all the time, especially with COVID-19, Raymond? We have uh, uh, partnered with uh, SPARC, and uh, SPARC is uh, the uh, organization. They get the volunteers, and they connect the volunteers to local organizations. And that's another program. So we are giving out uh, SPARC with uh, $100,000 and uh, to help them mobilize volunteers to serve those in need during the COVID-19 outbreak. And uh, the website is www.sparkontario.ca and they get more information from this website. Perfect. Stay safe, stay in touch is the theme. Raymond, any lasting message, uh, final message to the seniors listening right now? I'm senior myself, and I want to tell each and every senior, we are the most important members of our society. When we are young, we raise our families. We are the ones who have built this beautiful province called Ontario, and Canada, the best country in the world. And uh, we have every right to get respected in this most difficult, challenging time. And please stay safe and stay in touch. Okay? Well said. Raymond chose the MPP for Scarborough Roos River, the Minister of Singers and Accessibility. Raymond, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for defending the singers of Ontario. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including the food banks of York Region. Afua Ba now with an update. Well, a very active organization within the community has partnered with the Food Bank of York Region to help process and, of course, uh, deliver food packages out to community members within the region that may need it. Joining me today to talk about the partnership that has been announced is none other than Alex Bellotta, Director of the Food Bank of York Region. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Okay, so talk to me about the partnership with YMCA and the new facility being added to help the Food Bank of York Region. Well, we particip- every Friday we participate in a, uh, an emergency food table meeting sponsored by the Regional Municipality of York and United Way. And I was expressing a need for more space because of the overwhelming amount of food that we've been receiving over the past couple of months. And um, they they indicated that they may have some space. And I went up and I I um, um, inspected uh, the facility, and we found a couple of buildings that would be suitable. And uh, we talked. They talked more about um, helping the community. Uh, so we offered to bring them food, and they're packaging food for us, and they're also packaging food for. Um, uh, organizations that they're supporting outside of York Region. Great news uh, regarding this partnership, but of course this partnership means that even though there's been a a huge increase in people donating, there could also be a huge increase in people accessing the food bank. So I know we spoke a few months ago regarding COVID-19 and the increase in residents, uh, you know, accessing the food bank. How have operations been since then? Well, we've seen a 15% increase in the uh, number of individuals that are wanting to access any of our agencies across the region. And um, we've seen greater interest from other agencies to become a community partner with us. So we've taken on eight more agencies that we either deliver to on a weekly, biweekly, or monthly basis, or they could also come to our warehouse and pick up. And uh, that takes us up to uh, 76 community partners across York Region that we're involved with. In terms of the partnership with the YMCA, so they're packaging food items for you there. How does it then get to the community? Uh, We put it on one of our trucks and we send it to our agencies or housing co-ops across the region. Okay. And how long do you expect this partnership to to last? We're thinking it's going to last as long as the state of emergency continues and the threat of COVID uh, uh, continues as well. I know I asked you before, but uh, are there any products that you have seen in particular that there's been an increase in demand for? Not, there isn't one particular item that there's a, a more of a demand for. I could say across the board there's a demand for all products, but we're particularly concerned here about infants and children. So if people want to donate diapers or baby wipes or formula, that would be really great. Okay. And then aside from the products that you mentioned uh, in terms of babies and infants and formula, are there products that maybe not necessarily be food related? Um, Are there any products that uh, the bank is in need of? Um, We don't usually get requests for household consumables and uh, and personal products, but we do offer it uh, to our our, um, home delivery service that we've we've implemented since COVID-19. So if you want to, if uh, your listeners want to donate uh, household consumables or any, any personal products, we'll make sure it gets on one of our trucks and sent to uh, a recipient anywhere in York Region. 
Awesome. Okay. And then can residents donate food uh, or any items to both facilities or are you just uh, preferring that they uh, ship or take items to the Food Bank of York Region specifically? Uh, you, I don't know about Cedar Glen, uh, if they're accepting donations up there. Uh, we do accept donations here from 8 to 3 o'clock Monday to Friday. Perfect. Okay, and if residents uh, want more information or maybe if they want to volunteer, especially for uh, the home delivery part of the organization uh, that you have implemented, where can they go for more info? For our home delivery, you go to www.fbyr.ca, find food, and then COVID delivery. You could also go to our donation page and make a cash donation. And again, if you want to make a food donation, you can come to our warehouse at 8201 Keel Street, Units 5 and 6 in Concord. Perfect. Alex, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And of course, congratulations on the partnership with the YMCA. Thank you very much. God bless. Well, the coronavirus has not only changed our lives here at home, but really all over the world. Tina Cortez with the story of a York Region family working in South Sudan during this pandemic. Karen Ball is a former York Region resident who has now spent six years in South Sudan. Karen, thank you for joining us on the feed. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us about your life and work in South Sudan before COVID-19? How did you end up there? Sure. So my husband, Chris, and I, we live in South Sudan with our three children, and we're serving with Mission Aviation Fellowship. Uh, the purpose is to share the love of Jesus with isolated people so that they can hear God's good news. So my husband is a pilot, and he flies all around South Sudan. He is delivering things like medicine, doctors, missionaries, church work, lots of humanitarian aid to a country desperately in need of hope. So that's what we're doing here. And I am a teacher. Um, I went to York University, and now I'm teaching here at an international school where my children attend, as well as teaching at um, some local, uh, a local village school in a mud hut. So tell us about what the classroom was like in South Sudan before COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, the classroom here is great. There's lots of kids going to school. Uh, so the classrooms can be full, um, maybe even up to 50 kids crammed into one classroom, uh, not many books or pencils. They're sitting on a floor or a broken bench, um, but they're very eager to learn. And they say we know that education is the hope. So, yeah, they're very eager to learn um, and to, to increase their education here. And what is your home like in South Sudan? Uh, well, we are living in a very Western or North American type home uh, that's provided for us by MAS. We live on a compound with 24-7 security, high walls, barbed wire fences. Um, we have air conditioning and, yeah, good modern conveniences, mostly just so that we have longevity so that we can stay here and continue to have a good life as we serve the people of South Sudan. And what are the outdoors like? Is it like here at home where, you know, you might see a cat or a dog, um, kids running around on their bikes? Yeah. Um, so we live, we live in um, a bit outside of the city in a village. So all of the people in the community walk to our compound for water. We have a well and we have a tap outside of the compound. So on any given evening, there could be 20 to 40 people outside our compound coming to get water. There's always kids running. Um, they don't usually have their own bicycles, but they their favorite pastime is to play soccer 
or to to like spin a old bicycle tire back and forth between their friends. Uh, it's really hot here. Uh, 30 degrees is normal. Sometimes it's going up to 40, which is 90 to 100 degrees. So it's very hot. Um, we have one wet season, one dry season. We have wildlife in terms of like birds, cats and dogs. But in the city, there's not much African wildlife, no giraffes or elephants here. So how has where you are been affected by COVID-19? Yeah, so we have all the schools, churches, and sporting events closed. So the schools are now no longer in session for an unknown amount of time. They don't have any options like Zoom or Google Classroom. There is just completely, schools are completely closed with no chance of um, any online learning. Online is not really an option here for our students. They're living in poverty and mud huts, so no online learning. Um, they are attempting some social distancing, encouraging people to wear masks. But as you can imagine, when you're living in a place with no running water, um, social distancing, you know, you're crammed into a small community where there's many people living in one house. Um, it's, it's very hard to social distance. Also, when the people are in the markets, it's very full, very packed, very much looking like a slum where there's just people crowded everywhere. So they are trying to have um, different lockdowns and curfews and, and different rules in place, but it is naturally very hard to lock down um, a city or to quarantine a city in this manner. Have you attended those markets? What's it like? Uh, no. So for our own safety, we are doing our own best to social distance. So we, I go out of the compound about once every two weeks for major grocery shopping, and then we rely on some um, people in our community and our neighbors or people in our city to come and deliver things for us. So we have some people that will come and deliver the food that we need or do our shopping for us. Are you worried about life right now in, in your own compound and beyond? I wouldn't say I'm worried because I have, uh, yeah, my full trust and hope in God. So he is our strength. He is our hope. Um, and so we're not worried, but it's definitely something that we are praying for and asking God to just come and, and help the situation. It is um, sad to see all over the world what is happening. And um, I think that sadly in South Sudan, it could be very devastating um, our numbers are still rising. We haven't probably reached a peak yet. Um, so, yeah, it's something that I'm definitely praying and trusting in God for, but I wouldn't say exactly that I'm worried. I know that my hope is in God. What are the hospitals like there? They are um, very basic. Um, oftentimes they don't have power. They're not clean. They don't have running water. Uh, in the last months or so they have started a COVID clinic but yeah it's very basic very bare very minimum and are you able to receive updates uh, the latest information about the virus yep so we are part of an NGO forum so many NGO humanitarians have this uh, this forum so we're getting daily emails um, about the numbers, recommendations. A lot of the humanitarian and NGO communities are definitely following protocol, and they're also flying with us. So we are flying out things like COVID um, test kits as well as, you know, basic things like masks and soap and 
different um, things that are necessary for helping people with COVID, um, we're going and flying for organizations like Samaritan's Purse, which are really on the ground helping um, people so that they can have proper medical care. And, and yeah, so I think that's a really good thing. Now, what about your husband's job? Has he also been forced to stop working? They haven't stopped working, but MAS, Mission Aviation Fellowship, has definitely seen a decrease in the number of flight requests. So we're still here ready to help. Um, However, we have a lot of restrictions. The government is doing this lockdown where people for a time couldn't and they still can't travel easily between the borders of our different states, which is like Canadian provinces. So we've had a lot less passengers on board. Uh, We've had a few passengers, like for medical reasons or for absolute necessary, that they have to have a COVID test saying that they don't have coronavirus. Um, But we're doing a lot of, like, grocery runs. So there's missionaries that are stuck out in the field that don't have access to food. So we've been sending them food. There's been, yeah, lots of just humanitarians that need regular things like medicine and food, and they've been still delivering that. But definitely they've seen a decrease in the amount of demand for flying. Now, you mentioned that you've got three small children. What if they're not able to go back to school for a long period of time? Will you be forced to come back to Canada? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Our international school has also closed, but we're doing a form of homeschooling here on the compound. We have a teacher that works at the school, and she's also in our compound. So she has been providing school for them. Um, So, yeah, we don't foresee needing to go back to Canada for education at this point. You know, Karen, I've got to say that you sound very positive and optimistic. Are you really like that? Are there times when you think that I'm not sure how much more I can take? What, what, What are you feeling? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely a glass half full type of person. So you hit hit the nail on that one for sure. But, yeah, I won't lie. There's definitely days that are that I don't quite feel that the glass is half full. Sometimes we get emails that there's a repatriation flight, so they're encouraging Canadians to return. And, yeah, sometimes I get some feelings in my heart of what I should do. But we feel really called to be here by God. And, yeah, we find our joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we find our hope in him. And we're happy to continue to serve him here despite the conditions. Well, Karen, thank you for sharing your story, your family's story from South Sudan. Uh, Please stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, stay in touch. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. For the very latest developments on COVID-19 and exclusive updates from York Region's Medical Officer of Health, please go to 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.